Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. And welcome. You're back in the room with Season 3, Episode 50 of Drive-by Cinema. The podcast where we watch the movie so you don't have to. With me is my co-host, Paul. And with me, my co-host, Richard. Welcome one and all. Paul, last week, yeah, you said a lot of things. You, yeah, some of which may be, may be actionable, some of which may be libelous. I don't know. It was a fever dream of heated discussion. You threw Just Stop Oil under the bus. That was it. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. I didn't really. I just said I don't really think... Well, they I, should be allowed to protest. You, you wanted to bring back fossil fuels, a strong advocacy for burning <laughs> coal and oil from Paul last week. I think you're strawmanning my argument somewhat here in the first <laughs> two points. How dare you? That's what you said. You said no, we should, no. in order to defeat Two Russia, protesters have should... had to have their hands amputated because they decided to stick them together with concrete oh. in Germany. Oh, dear. Right. Okay. Okay, there. Paul. That's how to compose my argument. The concise, <laughs> the considered matter. But I stand by the fact that we should withhold our decision on fossil fuels whilst this war is going on, Richard. Very much, definitely. Listen, I have quite a thing here. A few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I discussed how ChatGPT had managed to review this podcast. Mm. And it reviewed it very well. Even though it it presumably has never heard us. Yeah. Well, listener Pete. Thank you, Pete. He asked Google's Bard AI about us. And I believe I sent you the the results, didn't I? You did. But before that, I've got to ask ChatGPT, is Paul actually Paul anymore? Has Richard done away with him and replaced him with an imitation of his voice? You, you're going to ask ChatGPT? Yeah, see what he comes up with. Now, Pete asked two questions, and I, I'm not going to read the whole thing out. It's quite a detailed description. He asked for a description of what the podcast is. Oh, I thought and, I was going to say, are the podcasters twats? And the, <laughs> the description it gave was, again, eerily accurate. Yeah. Now you, Quite you, flattering. You pass, this, you pass this on to me pretty quickly, pretty pronto. I have to say, I don't think it really matches ChatGPT's succinct and quite beautiful review. No, I don't think it's as good. At, well, I'm mm. using ChatGPT4. I think Google Bard is maybe more ChatGPT3 kind of level. I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem to be as good. Pete then asked Bard for a review, yeah. and the review is somewhat more hallucinatory. And <sighs> I think you were as amused as I was by the fact that it describes <laughs> the podcast as being hosted by Rick Remender and right. Paul Jenkins. I don't know who the first or the second are. I mean, they're all real people by that name. Right. It does describe us in this review as both experienced filmmakers. <laughs> now, I don't know that the people with those names are experienced filmmakers. One is an animator. Right. I think another one might be an artist of some kind. And I don't know whether they know each other or whether they have a podcast. But anyway, Google Bard seems to think that you are us, and I apologise for that. Although it's not my fault. I don't know why. It's a pointless apology, isn't it? Sorry. Yes. The other thing that's weird and interesting is I'm, I'm going to ask you do you know mm. what our most popular podcast episode is of recent times? I may have Last time it. we checked in on the analytics I believe it the first indie film from a director who graduated from making YouTube shorts but I can't remember his name I mean our most popular episode is almost certainly episode number one which is very embarrassing because it's terrible audio quality but recently in the last sort of 12 months of 18 months or so. By far and away, the most popular episode of all of the series is Synchronic. Right. That's the movie with the the time-travelling... No, it's the time-travelling medics in New Orleans. Oh, I barely remember that one. I thought it was the one in the suburbs where they swap dinner parties. That's called something else. No, that's Coherence. That's Coherence. No, Synchronic is where they have that special drug... And that guy's got something wrong with his pituitary, played by (laughs) Anthony Mackie. And it means he can travel in time by sitting in different places on his sofa. Why should it be 
that more people have heard that podcast, Paul? Speculate. I don't know. I mean, is there some? Is, is it a cult? Is it becoming a cult classic? Unlikely. I assume. I assume that someone on the crew. They must have Googled themselves. Oh, we're right? the only people to have reviewed it, is what you're saying. No, I'm sure that's not true. But if you were, if if you had just done a movie, you would almost certainly write Google for reviews at some stage. Unless yeah, you, who hasn't Googled their own name? And, you know, if you were remotely impressed by the way it was reviewed, you'd pass it around everyone you knew, wouldn't you? I don't think we spoke in gushing terms about it. Yeah, but we're very rarely hypercritical of movies, and I don't think we trashed Synchronic. That's because I'm terrified of somebody turning up at my house, an angry director saying, right, let's see you make a movie then. (laughs) And holding me at gunpoint whilst I have to make a two-minute short. (laughs) It's the obvious criticism of criticisms. Yes. Or critique. Let's see you do it then. Do you think after... It's not a valid criticism of criti- a criticism, though, is it, really? I mean, after three years of doing this podcast, Paul, do you think we could write a screenplay? What do you think? No, I, I don't. I, th- I think they're two separate ventures, aren't they, essentially? I'm sure there's a small amount of, you know, crossover between reviewing films and writing and making films. I don't think... I think it's sure. minimal. I think it's minimal. You know, it's tangential, at most. I'm not even sure we would know what would be the good subject for a film. I mean, where do you even begin? I mean, we've seen so many different films on so many different topics. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. Can I, could I put my finger on what would make a good film? No, not really. No, no. I mean, we've watched so much. I wouldn't know my canapes from my crudités. Yeah. <laughs> it's the problem, I think, isn't it? It's difficult. Listen, why don't we talk a little bit about the movie that we chose for this week? But only after the music. Paul, this time you bade us watch a movie from a British director. I did, very famous. Was that in preparation for the movie that we're almost certainly going to see... No, next should week. it have been? He's also a British director, right? Right. We plan to see Oppenheimer. I know it's out of sequence. We normally is at the end of the podcast, but Oppenheimer is nearly upon us and we've been waiting for it for a while. So obviously Christopher Nolan. This one is Danny Boyle. Oh, I see what you mean. Right. No, that mm. was not my thinking. No, no, no. This isn't one of Danny Boyle's most famous films. And he did say. the one... The Indian who wants to be a millionaire thing? Slumdog, Slumdog Millionaire. Slumdog Millionaire. He made his name with train spotting. Oh, fuck, yeah. And 28 Days Later, the zombie movie. Okay, and The Beach. Sunshine is a bit of a classic. So this is his first foray into Guy Ritchie-style movies then? Okay, right. Well, that might explain some things then. I don't know, you could, you could say that train spotting is a bit like that, couldn't you? Sort it is, of. but it's not so much focused on the crime, is it? This is from 2013, and I understand yeah. that he he made this movie before he was, or during his prep for the Olympic opening ceremony, which of course he's also famous for, for 2012 London Olympics. He directed, produced the show that opens the Olympics. He which, directed people moving their hands in unison to make shapes. Paul, have you seen the 2012 Olympic opening Does ceremony? Does the Spice Girls drive in a London taxi? Or something like that? I don't know, but it was amazingly good. Now, the, the opening ceremony was, I think, where Britain peaked. Yes, it was, it been, was the peak it, of Cool Britannia, wasn't it? It has been downhill sharply all the way since that moment. But All boats rise with the tide. All boats rise with the tide, but it's only when the tide goes out you see who's not wearing the swimsuits. <laughs> but it was actually a moving and emotional experience, the whole opening ceremony. Do you mean Elton John was there? Like, everyone remotely famous... Put an appearance. Sat on a revolving piano for 45 seconds in a medley. Yeah, Probably. Yeah. The jive bunny that was cool to like. Paul, you're speaking like you have never seen it. I've, I've seen bits of it, and I'm pretty sure the Spice Girls romped it in a, black, in, a, in a London black cab. That may well be true, but, I mean, it, it's quite long, but worth seeing. Bombastic, even, potentially. 
I would recommend you watching it. Absolutely. It's the coronation chicken of sandwich fillings, is what you're telling me. It's good. You will enjoy it. I promise you will enjoy it. I like a bit of razzmatazz. Yeah. However, you know, this foray into Brick Crime, I don't know. I mean, how well was it received? Fairly well. Budget 20 million, not bad. I mean, he got some money behind him, but only made 25 at the box office. So a bit of an elegant Frosby Frosby flop, I would say, ultimately. Paul, thanks for the info dump. It was written by John Hodge, who also wrote The Beach. The screenplay, presumably. Did he? Yeah, yeah. And it's starring that bloke, that famous bloke, the Scottish bloke who is not in... I was going to say Ian McKellen then. (laughs) It's not Ewan McGregor. (laughs) It's not Ewan McGregor, it's James McAvoy. Oh, thank you, James McAvoy. He's like nearly as famous now, but I'm not really sure what for. He's been in the X-Men... Movies, hasn't he? he well, recently, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor X, I think, doesn't he? Now, the movie opens with him explaining security at art houses, auction houses, and stuff about the theft of art. Yeah, he talks about that that double-edged sword where you've got to let people in to look at the stuff, but mm-hmm. some of them are going to try and steal it. And he said, like, you know, back in the day, you had a few hammers and a fast car. You could just come in there with a bit of violence all the threat of violence and, and walk away with, with a fabulous piece of art. He says, not anymore. Well, he makes a reference to actually what was the biggest art heist in history, which happened in 1990 in Boston. Boston? Boston. It happened in well, a place called... The security drinking a cup of coffee at the time? Coffee. It happened in the Isabel Stewart Garden Museum. Okay, so... The thieves there made off with, I don't know, something like 15 pieces of art worth, I think, in excess of $500 million. million. And how many did they recover, do you know? Never been recovered, not one of them. Not one of them? That's 33 years ago now. Wow. In the film, they mention one of these paintings. It was Rembrandt's Some Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Right. Rembrandt's only seascape, which was stolen during that thing. Oh, that's a good painting, though, isn't it? Here's a question, though. Right from the outset, something that puzzles me. What the hell are you supposed to do after you've stolen Rembrandt's only seascape? What do you do with it? Rub your hands with glee and admire it. I sure. Mean, <laughs> you're left in a golem kind of situation, aren't you? I've been reading about this because it got me interested in the whole question of art theft. Mm-hmm. So you're still in a very valuable painting that everybody knows on site. But what do you do with it? You know, I, I read a description by one guy who was commenting that. Well, I mean, presumably you must love art, you know. I mean, Well, the art of stealing art is oh, not addictive. in the theft, it is in the selling. Oh, I see. This idea that you've got these gentlemen thieves who appreciate art going around stealing it for their own collection, I think, I think that's pretty far-fetched. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think the kind of people whose lives revolve around doing criminal activity, being on the run, looking over the shoulder, are not the kind to contemplatively put a piece of painting on the wall and regard it, are they? That's not put it in a safe box and come back to Barker's once every 10 years. And roll it out in a That's nice, put it back in again. <laughs> See if it is on your tail. Hot fussed out of that. I don't know. I mean, you make a good point. In terms of basic psychological profiles, I mean, nothing really seems to fit there, does it? In terms of why would those people do that? And mm, exactly, um, obviously, you want some I mean, Bitcoin, wouldn't you? If you if you are if you are if you are international sort of jet setting criminal, you want something inconspicuous and untraceable, wouldn't you? That you could you could trade easily. I've heard of two, well, two or three different ways in which you might be able to realise some of the value. If you sell it on the black market, for a start, it's worth 10% of its market value. Yeah. And there's more problems, I think, which we may come to. What you can sometimes do, and what has happened, the museum will sometimes put up a reward or even offer to buy the paintings back. I see. Some museums refuse to do that on principle. Obviously, it would encourage more. But some will just pay it. In some cases... The insurance company will deal with it. And the insurance companies are much more likely just to pay, no questions asked, pay some cash over to return the paintings. But some of the most valuable pieces of work are not insured because no one will insure them. 
Also, that assumes that these thieves have got the smarts and the wherewithal to figure out that there's an insurance policy on a piece of art and know which insurance companies contact. Mm-hmm. So there's a documentary all about this particular art theft that I mentioned. It's on Netflix. It's called This is a Robbery, the World's Greatest Art Heist. And there was a guy in there, I was just watching it before we started this recording, a guy there saying, he was talking about the Dr. No theory, you know, a criminal mastermind who collects art. He gets the thieves, you know, he pays them, or they've prearranged it, or they're stealing it to order, to his order, Mm -hmm. or her order. This guy was saying that these people don't exist because if a important piece of art was stolen, a reward was put up, those guys would just shop him for the, the reward. Why wouldn't they? What would be stopping them? <laughs> but the other thing that I've heard that sometimes happens is they sometimes get used as sort of get-out-of-jail-free cards by organised criminal gang members. Your gang steals these works of art. If you one of the important lieutenants gets taken by the cops, you can say, listen, if you reduce my sentence or whatever... I can tell you where that Rembrandt is that's been missing all this time. I see. And so there might be leverage there, I suppose. It's a lot of very speculative stuff going on, isn't it? I saw a comment saying they might be good thieves, they might be even opportunistic thieves, but they're not very good businessmen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Essentially, we're looking at a 5% return if they were to try to get it on the black market, aren't we? If it's actual but market. who would buy it on the black market? Suppose you are an art forger. Here's another problem, right? Suppose you forge paintings for a living. Mm-hmm. If a really famous painting gets stolen, you go to your little workshop and pull out the copy that you made, or you do one quickly. You put it up on the black market. How are they going to check the provenance? No one's checking the provenance, right? How can you prove this is the one that got stolen? It's a brilliant time for a forger to sell it, isn't it? In that knowledge... Even with plenty of money and a, a no morals, no scruples, you'd be a fool to buy on the black market, wouldn't you? He's crazy. So Simon, our, I don't know, I guess our anti-hero, as it turns out, he, he points out the various security measures they've got in his auction house. What um, do they have, Paul? Essentially, he like if there's some sort of stick-up, he, he puts the valuable painting in a bag and, and puts it down a rubbish chute. <laughs> into the vault, which is on a time lock, so it cannot be opened. So, That's yeah, it, so really, I think, isn't it? Apart from yeah. the various mundane securities that all businesses that deal with valuable items have. And he's mentioning also that a lot of auction houses will hire ex-Ukrainian commandos in a van outside. Or so he's heard, yeah. yeah. Now, this film was made in 2013, a long time before... We all know how tough Ukrainian soldiers are. (laughs) (laughs) So we get down to the action pretty quickly, don't we? Okay. He's doing this description over images of an actual heist that's now taking place. Yes. Where his auction house. Yeah, and we see someone drive a gee whiz electric car up behind his van full of Ukrainian commanders. Parks it very close to the back door so that when they try to get out. They can't get out. The you think the driver could the driver not pull forward like a few feet? <laughs> Maybe not the smallest problem I have with this movie. As it turns out, sorry, not the biggest problem. Maybe the smallest problem I have with this movie was that. Yes, I did think about it. It's like why can't he move forward? Anyway, well, the, the painting uh, about to be stolen is "Witches in the Air," which is one of Goya's famous ones, yeah. isn't it? It's actually not in an auction house. In reality, it's in the Museo del Prado. The where? Museo del Prado. Where is that? I assume it's somewhere in either in... Italy or Spain. <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> in GeoGuessr Europe. You're only 3,000 kilometres out. No, it's actually in Madrid, I think. It's the National Gallery of Madrid. Ah, okay. 1798. In the movie, he talks about it as being the first kind of modern painting or such. One of the first modern paintings. McAvoy... Simon, as you say, his character is called. He works in the auction house, doesn't he? He's an auctioneer. So as soon yes. as things start to go off, the robbers are knocking around with smoke grenades and stuff and beating up security guards. He grabs the painting, he puts it in the bag, walks down to the vault with two security guards. There he is confronted by a robber called Frank with a gun. He hands the bag over. 
And Frank bends down to unzip the bag to check the painting. And Simon tasers him. Yeah, he grabs a taser off one of the security guards. And unwisely, you might argue, goes to tase the armed man. Frank is shocked, but not incapacitated by the taser. And he hits Simon in the face with the butt of his gun, knocks him out, leaves in a hurry, jumps in the getaway vehicle, and away they go. Celebration all round, quickly curtailed when they, they unzip the bag and discover it's just an emptied frame. Just a frame. Hmm? Simon seems to have double-crossed him. It quickly transpires that Simon is an inside man and that he's been part of the heist, doesn't it? That's right. He was their inside man all along. Over the titles, we're seeing James in hospital undergoing some kind of brain surgery. And when he goes home, still confused, he sees his car has been broken into and his flat has been ransacked, presumably by the gangmates looking to see if they could find the missing painting. Not so much later they turn up and they kidnap him. And under threat of torture, they want to know where the painting is. It does really seem as if he doesn't know because they're tearing his, his fingernails off and all kinds of stuff, aren't they? That's right. They're pretty brutal with him, aren't they? Mm. He's as honest as he can be. He says he doesn't remember. Because it seems he does want to remember and not get killed, doesn't it? I guess so. And Frank doesn't want to kill him because he's the only person who might know where the painting is. So what he does is he looks for alternative treatments for amnesia. One of them that the surgeon suggests might work is hypnotherapy. And he looks through and chooses a hypnotist to go and see. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. So they put a wire on him because they want to listen in to make sure that in case he reveals it, I suppose, during the session and send him in there. They also give him a mobile phone so that they can ring it if they think he's saying too much to the therapist. Simon says that he chose the therapist because he liked the face, I think, doesn't he? Yeah. But when he gets in there, it seems that she might recognise him. Yes. And we, of course, recognise her, don't we? Because we know the actress. Uh, Do we? (laughs) It's Rosario Dawson, Paul. Right. She's pretty prolific, but she made a big name in the Marvel Daredevil and Luke Cage TV series. Wow. And she's pretty cool. I really like her, actually. And she's done loads of stuff recently, especially. She's been getting a lot of work. So Elizabeth C. through this, maybe because she knows... Simon to begin with, but also because his wire is sort of sticking out of his shirt, isn't it? And That's right. Very quickly, she grabs the microphone and says, look, I want to speak to you guys, not to Simon. Whatever That's right, she speaks looking directly for. at them, yeah. He'd also, he'd gone in there with the story of looking for his car keys. They do find the keys in the wardrobe where he remembered suddenly that he'd put them. I guess that demonstrates that she can help recover his memories? Yes. Um, there are many reviewers that say this film just plays thick and fast with the reality of hypnotherapy. Oh, really? I hadn't, I hadn't read any such reviews. Of course, this is a subject close to my heart. <laughs> In a previous life, which Richard doesn't remember because he's been hypnotised out of him, Richard was <laughs> a stage hypnotherapist, weren't you? Or a hypno-performer, hypnotist. Yeah, there's no, there's no such thing as a, well, maybe a stage hypnotherapist. Sorry, a stage <laughs> hypnotist. I mean, there's a lot of myths and mythology around hypnosis. And I'd like to think I've got a bit of an insight into it, but it's only my anecdote, isn't it? I think it's later on in the movie, a bit of a plot spoiler here, is when in the story she manages to hypnotise all memory of her out of his mind kind of thing. At least that's what she purports to do, yeah. Mm. Does does she achieve it? I don't know. I mean, mean, (laughs) one of the problems with this film is that it's it's not told in an extremely linear fashion, is it? No. A lot of it is in flashback, and a lot of it is in flashback from an unreliable narrator who can't even probably trust their own memory because they've been (laughs) hypnotised. So I'm not really always sure that I know what happened in this film. Yes, That's a fair observation. She has been Googling Simon's name, hasn't she? And she's figured out that he works at an auction house or worked there and that there's been a recent robbery. Mm -hmm. So I think she's put two and two together and knows 
exactly why they're trying to get him to recover his memory. She actually arranges to meet them, and she does a deal, basically, with the, the gang, doesn't she? That's right, yeah. She actually hypnotises him in front of them, does a hypnotic induction. There's some to and fro about convincing them that she's on the level, but they, the gang come around convinced, don't they? And Frank, who's the brains of the outfit, I mean, he's, he's willing to work with her. One of the reasons why I was fascinated enough to go learning hypnosis was the kind of mystique around it. One of the things is, you know that broadcasters, TV and radio, are not allowed to broadcast a hypnotic induction. I didn't know that. On the basis, I suppose... That it's effective. ...that people will be put to sleep, hypnotised remotely, when they're watching TV or listening to the radio. Which does suggest that it's powerful and effective, doesn't it? Don't know. I mean, I mean, witchcraft was banned, wasn't it, for many centuries? <laughs> Speaking of that side of the law as well, there are also laws about venues allowing hip- hypnotists to perform. Really? There certainly were when I was doing stage hypnotism, I think. So you had to, I think, have a certain kind of licence. I see to permit a hypnotist to do a stage act. So again, it seems like it's treated as though it's potentially effective. So during the second session, you know, Simon goes under and he remembers that after the, you know, after being hit by Frank, the amnesia-causing blow from Frank, he escapes with the painting wrapped inside his suit and is about to escape when he gets a message on his phone as he's stood in the middle of the road and gets hit by a random red car. That's right, yeah. And he also remembers that the driver was Elizabeth, his hypnotherapist. Somewhat erroneously, as it turns out. Was it, though? <laughs> well, I don't think it was, no. Although, <laughs> but we'll come to this later, I guess. This whole what actually fucking happened debate that this movie sort of drags around with itself. We get the story also in another session when she's talking to him that he was supposedly in gambling debt and yes. he knew, I think his dealer, his drug dealer, a guy called Riz, was actually the driver in the gang. That's right. Yeah. Knew Frank and the other gang members. They got the idea that they could help solve his money problems if he acted as their inside guy for this art heist. But we have no explanation of why they're stealing this Goya, or who they're going to sell it to. The really important bits, as we've established, about stealing art. And we're no clear as to why Simon's a novice would want to double-cross them. That's right. Now, she's telling the gang that Simon is suppressing the memory because he fears that if he tells them where it is, they'll kill him. So she says that he needs to see that they're all God. vulnerable. <laughs> and she does that by putting them all... Under a hypnotic trance while Simon is watching. And one of the heavies nearly pees his pants in fear. Uh, yeah, that's Nick, I thought this is maybe, yeah. this is deeply weak, this part of the movie. It was, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. He has a kind of traumatic experience, doesn't he? He has this vision of being buried alive. And Simon is like suddenly liberated from his own fear. It's just, it's deeply unbelievable, isn't it? But there we go. Frank finds his way into Elizabeth's flat after all of this. Yes. And they have an exchange. There's some kind of erotic tension between the two, I think it's yeah. fair to say. Mm-hmm. But he's talking about what he's read and understands about hypnosis. He says that 5% of people are very suggestible. That, yeah, that is, I think, an accurate statistic, roughly speaking. With maybe 1% of people, or maybe less, but a small percentage of people being very suggestible, so much so that there have been recorded cases of like hypnotically induced crime. Wow. But again, like with a lot of things, a lot of stories of hypnosis, often it's not that people are being put under with a pocket watch, put to sleep, told that they're a chicken or whatever. It's more that a very charming, charismatic person meets them, gives them some instructions that they follow uncritically, like they go to the cash machine and withdraw some money. And they end up being, you know, robbed quite suddenly. Some people call this a sort of speed induction or a rapid induction, but it's not really like hypnosis that you might really recognise from stage and movies. So, again, it's shrouded in ambiguity, this whole thing. 
was watching a documentary about the Colombian Wonder Powder. The sort what? of uh, the date the date robbery drug. The date robbery. Or yeah, date they, rape? Like, not date rape. Date robbery, where they kind of the the girls in the bar will you know it's a hostess bar. They'll take for drinks that kind of thing for for a certain price, and then they'll blow this powder in your face. And at that point, although you're still functioning, you can still understand what people are saying. Yeah. But you lose all consciousness, you lose all memory of the events, and you just do what people tell you. And then they instruct you to, you know, go to the bank, take out money kind of stuff, and you obey, and the next morning you wake up in your hotel room with all your money taken and and no memory of what happened. And your kidney's missing. So they deliver it by blowing powder in your face. Yeah. I mean, what if you breathe in? Or if somebody else sneezes at the time? I don't know. I don't know. Seems a dangerous <laughs> way to do it. It's Columbia, yeah. Well, in part of the documentary is like often the girls will get the dosage wrong and they'll kill the people. You know, they'll fall flat dead on the floor because the dosage is too big, kind of thing. Oh, God. So it, it, it seems that Simon is falling in love with his hypnotherapist. And Frank is falling in love with yes. the hypnotherapist. Hmm. Now, she justifies this by saying it's transference, another weak point. She managed to convince the gang that we should go with this, we should, you know, ride with this, seduce Simon, and he'd be more likely to say where the painting is. So it's kind of set up. We know that we're going to have a romp in the bed, at least with somebody, either Frank or Simon. We don't quite know who they are. Possibly both. Maybe all the three. All three, yeah. She does another hypnotic induction, and she mm-hmm. suggests to him a journey through the French countryside in a 2CV <laughs> with a beautiful woman in the car with him. She takes him to this room full of paintings, uh-huh. and they're all missing or stolen paintings. In fact... I think all of them, or many of them, were stolen from the heist I was describing. <laughs> the the Boston heist. The Vermeer's concert one, that was in Boston, I believe. Caravaggio's Adoration, not sure about that. Manet, Degas, Van Gogh, Rembrandt. Certainly the world's of Rembrandt in the, in the Boston sort of theft. She leads him through this place to a final safe place, and he opens a package which contains, oddly, a tablet on which she suggests he can choose to remember what happened. Mm. And he presses play on the iPad or whatever it is, and he sees a video of himself auctioneering, taking the painting, cutting the canvas free, concealing it in his jacket, taking the bag with the empty frame to the vault, where Frank is bending down to the bag, and he realises he can't let Frank see that it's empty, which is why he zaps him with the taser. So far, so good. But we know that from the movie anyway, didn't we? So it's not really telling us anything more. It's more a revelation for Simon, isn't it? Except we now know why he chose just kind of double-cross Frank. Although we don't know why he decided he was going to take the painting for himself. Because, again, how would he get rid of the painting? Presumably Frank's the guy with the connection. Yeah. It's not obvious, is it? But he sees now him getting up from where he was knocked out with the painting in his jacket, as you're saying, leaving the building, in the street, hit by the car, sees it's the therapist in the car, as you say, and he feels betrayed suddenly. And he wakes up. He wakes up in bed, and they're showing him. Somehow they got access to an MRI scanner. Don't know how they did this. I guess she's sort of quasi-medical. This is where you say they're trying to erase memory of her in his head, aren't they? Mm. She's showing him lots of images and give him an electric shock, so she says, whenever that a picture of herself appears on the screen. Yeah. A kind of negative reinforcement. And she's saying to Frank, as she's doing this, that transference is the process whereby people fall in love with their therapist. That's not strictly what transference is, it? But, but it's part of transference, I guess. There's also this suggestion. I think Frank talks about it with her that she should fuck him to get him to reveal where the painting is. <laughs> and Frank bugs her room. He puts a microphone in her flat so he can spy on them as he takes her out to a restaurant. As Frank and, again, it's all done in flashbacks, so it's all non-linear. But as they're discussing all of this, Frank and Elizabeth at the MRI scan place, she's saying that he isn't really receiving any electric shocks. Yes. It's... It's something that she just suggested he would feel. It's all in his head. At some point before this, I think Simon has taken her out on a date as part of the ploy to, to you know, the fuck, fuck and tell ploy. 
that Elizabeth has got going. And uh, everything's going well until he sees a waiter. And then he kind of cools off and heads out. So maybe this is critical. Maybe this is pivotal. Don't know. Right. So Frank and Elizabeth have sex, but I'm not sure when it is. Is it about now? It is about now, yeah. okay. Yeah, again, they wind up in Frank's place. He's telling Elizabeth that he's losing patience and they need to, you know, find where this painting is. And while they're fucking, Nick, one of the gang members, the heavy, he sees them fucking and he goes straight to Simon's place and wakes them up and tells Simon that Frank and Elizabeth are fucking. I'm not sure why he did that. What was in it for Nick to do that? I don't know precisely. Maybe he's just the bronze and not the brain. I think Conflict. the idea is... Well, I think there's there's an attempt, a minimal attempt, to spin a double-double cross into the storyline here to imagine, is somebody... Because at the moment we imagine that maybe there's a hint. There's a hint that maybe Simon and Elizabeth are in on this together. Do you get that feeling about halfway through? It's somehow yeah, yeah. it's all a bit too convenient. They obviously kind of know each other from before. Maybe it's all a elaborate ploy to get rid of the crooks in a psychological way so they don't suspect it but make away with the painting. But I think this is an element, there's an element here to try to introduce an idea that it could be other kinds of machinations that are going on here. But it doesn't really work, I don't think. Elizabeth, while she's in Frank's bed, discovers in the bottom drawer of his bedside cabinet there is a revolver. He is, after all, a criminal. This is important. It's a Chekhov gun thing, isn't it? It's bound yes. to be used later on. So remember that. Whilst pillow talk is going on between the two of them, Elizabeth reveals that she was in a domestic abuse kind of relationship. Yes, it has moved on. And that's what makes her a survivor. Frank offers to like get revenge on him at that point. Mm-hmm. She declines. She has a swim in Frank's extremely expensive-looking yes. swimming pool in his flat. Again, not sure why Frank why. feels the need to be stealing a Goya oh, when he can yeah. afford you know, a London flat with a swimming pool in it. It's like kleptomania, isn't it? Once you start, you can't stop. Yeah, maybe it's for the coyote. Maybe it's for his Instagram. He's going to steal. <laughs> but this is the thing. If you steal a great work of art, you can't show anybody, can you? Especially if there's a, a reward on it. Inevitably, Simon's going to confront Elizabeth about the fact she's doing the dicky with, with, with Frank. And by various means, she hypnotises him again, doesn't she? I mean, there's only really one trick here, which is hypnotising people throughout this entire movie. Does she? I mean, they kiss yeah. at this point, passionately. Yeah. Well, she, and, she, she, and, she and, triggers his lust, and then and she hypnotises him. Well, how does she do it? What's the hypnotic trigger, Paul? She gets him to imagine that Frank wants to kill him. Oh, no, no. I think you've skipped over perhaps one of the most impactful scenes in the movie, haven't you? Because just before they're about to get busy, they've had a good snog. She says, hang on, I'm just going into the bathroom. And you kind of comically hear the noise of a a shaver. (laughs) And she emerges and reveals her now completely hairless shaved pussy. To him. Which resembles, as it later turns out, a missing page from Simon's Book of Art. I think it also resembles a lot of the art of the <laughs> period. Yeah. Which he's Not very passionate period. about. Yeah, yeah. And that's he, how he, he described uh, it as perfection, hadn't he? Like, and that's how she hypnotizes him. Yeah, I mean, he hell's... seems captivated by it, doesn't he? It completely takes him back to that I moment. See. And he asks her, How did she know? I suppose this is a clue that they already must have been intimate with one yeah. another, right? Then she takes Simon through his kind of hypno-imagination where Frank's trying to kill him. And so in his imagination, he has to reach out into his memory and find out where, or reveal to himself, where the painting is held. Frank catches Simon emerging from her place. Frank wants to talk with him. He takes him round to Frank's flat where the rest of the crew are there, all cooking breakfast. Yes. There's obviously going to be some kind of discussion, maybe violence happening, who knows. Simon excuses himself to go to the bathroom. He emerges from the bathroom, and all the breakfasts have been eaten, and he overhears and can see through a kind of frosted glass in Frank's very modernist flat. He overhears them planning to kill him. 
Yes. So Simon tries to escape and he calls Liz, finding the door locks. And she directs him upstairs to the Frank's bedroom. Yes. Where she knows there's a gun in the drawer. She offers to call the police, but he declines that offer. Yeah. So I think when we're on the phone, he's remembering where the painting is. Mm-hmm. She is finding the bug that Frank had placed in her room. And he tells her that it's in a red Alfa Romeo in an underground car park in Marble Arch. Probably the red Alfa Romeo that we saw him getting nearly run over by when he was leaving the auction house. Simon now shoots the three goons through the frosted glass. And he then shoots... He shoots Frank, doesn't he? So where's Elizabeth? Elizabeth is in her own home. But uh, yeah, of course. This is, I think this whole sequence is the bit that you're talking about where she's describing him killing Frank. Because we see Frank get up with no top of his head on. That's right. With his head blown off. He wakes up naked with a gun in his possession. And Liz has gone with the keys, which are the keys to the red car. He explores the empty flat with the gun. Frank jumps him. Apparently Frank was alive and well and he didn't shoot those guys. Takes the gun off him. Shows him that the gun was empty anyway. And Ah. so he's demonstrating that Liz is using him. That's all part of his fever dream. But Liz is trying to drive to the Marble Arch to find the car to get the painting. But as she gets in her own car to drive there, Nick the Heavy is already in there. I'm with you. Right. Okay. He grabs her and brings her back into her flat. And the gang are all there. They're threatening them. She says it's in the red car. And some of them are going to go and get the car. But they're splitting up. They leave Liz in the flat with Nick and one one or two of the other guys. Frank is going to take Simon with him to go and get the car in the car park. Presumably he'll know where it is. And as they leave, she kisses Simon tenderly on the lips. So Frank's taking Simon, he's getting in the lift. The goons take her and Nick is, as you say, seemingly about to rape her, pushes her onto the bed. Something distracts Frank, doesn't he, at the, as they're waiting for the lift. She's screaming. That's right. Simon grabs the fire extinguisher, surprises Frank with it, sprays him with it and smashes his face with the end. And then he spits out of his mouth three bullets, which is what she'd kissed into his mouth... She's good thinking while, while she was kissing. And so he loads the revolver. He goes back into the flat. He shoots Nick, banging the dick, and also one of the other guys who was in the flat. And finally Mercy kills Nick at the end. As they pass Frank on the stairs, he moves to shoot him, but she leaps to his defence saying that he can help them. They take him with him. Yeah, I'm not sure how he can help them, but I, I guess in the heightened moment you'd listen to your girlfriend, wouldn't you? She has a relationship with Frank, doesn't she? Yeah. And I think she likes him. What they do is they... We get down to some action finally, don't we? They, they all go to the car park. She has to pay in a, sh- a shocking £1,848 to get the car out. And apparently yeah, I'm not sure that's true, good. actually. I think there's a limit to how much you pay once cars have been left in a car park. <laughs> she can take to the small claims court anyway. Later. Simon gets Frank to drive at gunpoint, you know. Puts him Cleverly puts a, puts a zip tie on his hand to the, to the driver. Ties wheel. him to the steering wheel, that's right, yeah. Well done. And he gets in the back with Liz. Simon is asking Liz what the hell is going on in his head. She says some suppressed memories are better off forgotten. But she says that a year and a half earlier, he had wanted to stop gambling. And so he came selecting a random therapist to see Liz. And he was charming, but his addiction was too hard to crack, so they had lots of sessions. They grew closer and became a couple. And this is when he's discussing, you know, art and all the women in the art with hairless bodies and stuff and how perfect they are and beautiful. He became more and more suspicious and paranoid and jealous. And eventually he hits her in a jealous rage. So he was the domestic abuse kind of perpetrator that she'd mentioned to Frank, obviously. She'd quit. Then, of course, she, call, she calls off the relationship, but he won't leave, right. will he? He stalks her, doesn't he? Begging for forgiveness. He's become obsessed with her. And the police won't help in this circumstance, or can't help even. So she continues then seeing him for his therapy to address the problem. 
But I think he's making him forget her, isn't he? Yeah, she's she, got sorry. a cunning plan to use the therapy under the guise of the hypnotherapy, presumably to continue with with the treatment for for, for gambling addiction, is to use that hypnotherapy to make him stop obsessing forget about her, her. eventually to forget yeah. her completely. Yeah. And eventually, he doesn't come back to therapy, suggesting that he has indeed forgotten. <laughs> Yes. He needs, he needs now, a good calendar. This kind of gradual forgetting of somebody ever existing. I mean, it, does hypnotherapy work like this? I, I wasn't really convinced by this part. There's a lot of work done with hypnotism and memory, isn't there? I mean, it's sometimes used to try and recover repressed memories in traumatic cases, like satanic abuse cases. But I yeah, think invariably... But to, s- but to slowly make somebody forget a memory, I mean, it's kind of... Strange. In these cases of using hypnotism to recover memories, I think invariably it's just suggesting fabrication and confabulation of memories. Hmm. I don't think there's any good evidence that you can recover memories. If someone tells you a true thing that happened, I'm sure hypnotism will allow you to imagine that you remember it. And if it was an accurate depiction, it's a little bit like having a memory. I mean, what is a memory but a story you tell yourself? Yeah. Not just a written history, but a, a a visual, auditory, sort of somatic memory that you have, that that you repeat and rehearse. Memory is an act of rehearsal, isn't it? Where you recreate an event. Yeah, absolutely. Long-term memory is very much like taking a screenshot of your short-term memory. So you're not left. You're not left with the actual neurons, the actual, the actual no. physical memory. You're left with like a screenshot of it. So that screenshot can be just, you know, photoshopped however your brain wants to. Yeah, yeah. They they whiz the car off to a warehouse or some such or some... That's right. Yeah, Frank owns some kind of nightclub come warehouse. I think it's also where his flat is, right? It turns out that the woman in the red car who hit (laughs) Simon when he emerged from the auction house wasn't Liz... It was the woman, the beautiful French woman in the trance. So Elizabeth was right about that. It wasn't her driving the car. And she's in the trunk, decomposing, somewhat ickily. Because in his concussed state, he'd attacked her in the car, thinking that it was, that it was Liz. Apparently the knock on his head had caused him to remember her again. <laughs> and in a violent rage, he'd choked her, I think. Mm. Left her in the boot of the car all this time a few months later, had come back to Liz as Mr. Maxwell, which was when the gang were telling him to go and recover his memory. Liz gets out of the car, trepidatiously opens the boot. She does indeed find a rotting body in the boot. And the painting. She she does indeed find the painting, yeah. Again, a painting that's been in the boot of a car with a rotting corpse. (laughs) It can't be... It can't be the best way of keeping an an old master canvas, can it, really? Simon's still got a gun. He's got a can of petrol. He throws the painting to Elizabeth, which she gratefully accepts, douses the car in petrol, and gets ready to light it with the gunfire. Yeah. Not sure you could do that either. Mm. It works in this particular film. Right, the car takes forever to explode, and it gives time for Elizabeth to run down the wreckage yard, find a truck with keys in, drive it at the car, push it into the water... All while Frank is scrabbling to find his penknife and hotwire the car, yes. trying to cut the. So lots of action, but quite ridiculous. And so she drives the truck first into Simon Squelch and then into the blazing car, douses it in water in the River Thames, presumably. Yes, yeah, she pushes the car, the burning car with Frank in it, out of the warehouse, off the wharf side, into the water. I mean, she had a tremendous amount of faith that Frank had managed to cut his way free of <laughs> the cable tie holding his, entire, his yeah, hand yeah. to the steering wheel. But indeed he had. And he manages to escape the car, which is at no mean feat in a car sinking. He says, are you all right? She says, yes. She says, are you all right? He says, no. <laughs> cut scene, Elizabeth has disappeared. Seemingly That's gone. right. Yep. Frank has recovered and he's swimming in his swimming pool. She has sent him an iPad video of herself. I don't know why you would send an entire iPad and not just like, mail someone mm. <laughs> yeah, a USB or send a video file by email. But maybe we didn't do that in 2013. Is that 10 years ago? Debatable. I think it was 25 meg limit, wasn't it? 
He's got an iPad now. That's nice. And she's got a video of herself with the Goya on a wall. She has a flashback of her suggesting that Simon will steal the painting for her. Is that yeah. during the hypnotherapy? During what hypnotherapy? The one for his gambling addiction? I think she just tells us. That's, that's supposed to be a montage narrative, isn't it? Where we see the Russian doll of this whole story, which is that Elizabeth had set up. Set up everything. She was everything. the mastermind. We, we kind of knew it was heading in some sort of direction that way. We knew it was going to be a double-double cross of some sort. But that's what it turns out to be. That's the double-double cross. That's the So Russian maybe doll. she's the art lover. Potentially, yeah. So and she did this to get revenge for him having domestically abused her. Right. So the first time he went to see her, she didn't have these ideas for stealing the painting. They came to her the second time when they were split up and she was making him forget Correct. who she was. Yes. Right, okay. Now, at the end of the video to, to Frank, she says, you know, I, I don't know whether I'll see you again. Maybe I hope I, I do. But if you want to forget, there's a button here. You can press it and you'll forget everything. Red pill, blue pill kind of option. Do you want to press it or not? And you see him hovering over the button, unsure. And then the credits roll and we hear some cool music like most Danny Boyle films. Just at the end of the credits, you probably switched off already, Paul. Mm-hmm. At the end of the credits, you just hear the sound of a knocking. And I read... Oh, like that, yeah. I thought it was like knocking like on a door mm-hmm. as if it was Frank coming to see Elizabeth at the end like he'd found her. Oh, it's fine, who cares? You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, we got through it. Okay, so. Mm. It's, A, it is confusing. I would say, I would go beyond that. I would say it's torturously fractious. It just doesn't make sense, does it? The, the way it's... The cutscenes and the non-linear narrative, it's just not done in a way that's easily comprehensible. It's too much, isn't it? Yeah, you can't keep straight what is going on. You don't know who to believe. You don't know what to we trust. Need a, we need a clear, detached perspective, and we need a clear perspective from Simon's mind and from Elizabeth's mind. And as a director, they, they haven't done that. You know, but isn't need, the idea... We, we, need, we need some perspective or some camera angle that says, this is what's actually happening. And that would have helped with some of the scenes because the blur between, particularly some of the imaginative, you know, the point where Simon takes the gun to go downstairs and to shoot them and it's not actually reality, it's, he's in hypnotic trance, that is when the action's getting faster and it just melts into the action. It just makes it so confusing. No, I think... Yeah, you're right. That is one of the bits that I think the audience must feel really cheated at that moment. Disoriented, you know. Yeah. I mean, but are we supposed to be feeling as disoriented and discombobulated as Simon does? The problem with putting you in Simon's perspective... Is it doesn't is make sense. It, well, he's also, he's also not fundamentally not a nice guy, as we yeah. learn. I mean, he's either a gambling addict and a thief, a double-crosser, or, as we learn, actually a domestic abuser. I mean, he might have been manipulated to do the theft and stuff, but he's a domestic abuser at least, or an obsessive... But he's not a nice guy, let's just say that much. But you know, no one in here is very nice. No. But who is the morally upstanding person in all of this? There's no, no one. No. So who are you uh, supposed to root for? No one's perfect, right? But I've never... Double cross someone stolen a multi-million dollar painting and <laughs> abused a woman. <laughs> I mean, gosh, I don't know how they could have different done it different, but they should have done it different. The reveal should have been done in a way that was set apart from the action, where we can see clearly this is before. I don't know how they could have done it to signal it, but it just runs together in a very smudgy way, and ultimately is unsatisfying for that reason. Are we supposed to root for Elizabeth? Are we supposed to root for her? Are we supposed to... We're supposed to change sides. We're supposed to be rooting for him for about half the movie, aren't we? For about three quarters of the movie, I think. Until it's revealed that he used to beat her up. So that's, I think... I mean, that's a good decision, I think, in terms of filmmaking, is requiring the audience to change sides. It makes it interesting, uh, I mean, does she... um, But ultimately, she's not very sympathetic. I mean, she's very attractive, naked. But, I mean, that's... (laughs) 
doesn't make does a sympathetic she, um, character, does it? I don't think she earns the idea that she can get away with stealing the painting or actually ruining the lives of all of those other reprehensible people. Because <laughs> although they are a bit reprehensible, she did find herself in an abusive situation, in a relationship that's potentially dangerous, but she got out of it. Mm-hmm. We know that it happens. She got out of it and she dealt with it as best she could. Did she, though? She let him back into her life. Mm. She opened the yeah. door to him when she said goodbye to him, and that's when the real sort of stalking and obsessive threats and threatening and the, the neck strangling happened. I mean, But even at worst, I don't think it gives her the right to steal a painting <laughs> and get right, going. Well, that's an about turn for you, Richard, because apparently you can throw, throw paint on them. Yeah, of course. I mean, we could talk. We could have spent this entire podcast talking about the rights and wrongs, the morality of paintings being worth millions and millions of dollars stroke pounds. Can there really be any justification for a work of art being worth that much? That's not the work of art's fault, though, is it? No, it's it's not the work of art's fault. Mm. No. But I, I don't think it matters if some works of art get a bit of orange paint thrown on them. I'm not even sure that it matters that a bunch of art gets stolen. As long as we've got a picture of them, right? Yeah. I mean, they do say you have a better time if you imagine going on a holiday than going on holiday. Holidays are very stressful quite often, aren't they? Yeah. I find them quite stressful. You've got all the planning and preparation. All of these things make the entire project very unsettling. Unsettling is the word. Yeah, Uncomfortable, potentially. Yeah. Better stay at home. Better stay at home. If there's one thing we've learned over COVID, is home's all right. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what we're trying to say here, that there's nothing sympathetic about it in particular, I, absolutely right, apart from the fact she's suffered domestic violence. Is that narrative justification for stealing a major work of art and as a result of that having five people, four people, four people dead? Well, obviously not, no. Rosalia Dawson has said that she was perfectly happy with this film. I guess she was keen to work with Danny Boyle. And she had no problems with the nude scene. I think it was like her first nude scene as well. Right. Because presumably she believed it served the plot. I'm not sure I totally agree with her. <laughs> it seemed quite gratuitous to me. And also comical. Because, you know, it was just missing. Like, you know, it might have had a frosted glass bathroom window with, like, hair <laughs> flying, you know, like fur <laughs> flying out <laughs> as the clipper sound went off. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, mean, I didn't really buy that. Was that supposed to be the moment where he's... Is she triggering his memory using that? Is that I thought it was deeply unromantic way to do it, though, with the sound of, you know... <laughs> The buzzing razor in the background and the echo. It was quick. It was quick. But if you were about thinking you were about to have sex, and your other half just went off to shave. (laughs) I mean, like, it just comes across as quite a messy movie, doesn't it? Yeah. The action isn't really action. We get three minutes of action at the start when when the heist, and then we get five minutes of action in Iraqi's yard. And it's all very traditional stuff. And then we're supposed to get this what is psychological intrigue in the middle. But because fundamentally we don't know where people are standing and we don't know what's going on, it's not intriguing, is it? It's just confusing. Kind of baffling, yeah. Hmm. And I can it work it out like... now. We've talked through it. Yes, yeah. It's um, possibly a movie that demands being seen more than once, but I don't think you want to see it more than once, really. The Russian doll functions as this. In actual fact, she's been doing it all along in terms of hypnosis or from the second set of hypnoses to get him to steal for her. Yeah. Which runs counter to what we're supposed to understand in the movie, which is he entered this in on his, on his own volition and the hypnosis that she's continuing with is to reveal what the painting is. Whereas actually, she's continuing with the hypnosis presumably in order to suppress that realisation of, of her, or that memory of her. Is that supposed to be the fundamental tension in what she's doing there? Or what? What was her plan? I don't get it. Why? That's how it. Did, how did Frank get involved in the whole thing? Did she get Frank involved? No, she hypnotised him to go steal the painting. And then through that hypnotic suggestion, he worked it all out for her. So right? Simon got Frank to do it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the woman in the car was just an accident? Yeah. Right. So now, she hadn't planned for that? 
if they kind of let us in on the fact that she was more to do with this than, than was let on at the beginning, there would have been a tension there in the movie. It was like, oh God, is Simon going to remember her or not? And there is that tension for her, but we never feel it until the end of the movie when we realise what's been going on with the reveal. So it's kind of a pointless story to have that complication when it doesn't really affect how we watch the movie for the 65 minutes beforehand. It's just so messily organised. But we have to give some kind of score. Right. What do you think? How about acting? James is, as James is, he always plays this kind of guy, doesn't he? Like the vulnerable, likeable, well, not like, as it turned out, not likeable in the end, but initially likeable, kind of lower class Hugh Grant. Like the well-spoken lower class Hugh Grant. He's just like, well, she's great. Frank is your archetypal archetypal Euro villain. I'm going to say 7.5 for the I think it was maybe fairly strong. I would agree with that. I'd go so far as to say it's an eight. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, plot. (laughs) For its ambition, I'd definitely score it high. For its complications, worthy or not, pointless or pointful or not, it'd get a high score. But in terms of execution, it doesn't really bring it off, does it? Yeah, it's that's not right. It's bit more than not, it, it can chew. Yeah. It doesn't lead, lead us to dizzying realization. It just leads us to confusion and despair. I think <laughs> watching it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go a four on this. I'm sorry. I have to score it a five mm-hmm. because it is ambitious. It doesn't work. But I didn't hate watching it. Right. It's all right. Yeah, I mean, it's an all right movie. Maybe that's more of an overall score. But, you know, the plot is intriguing enough. It doesn't totally hold together. We've kind of figured it out, though, haven't we, I think? I think. I'm not sure. (laughs) Right, so should we talk about science? The science of trance and hypnotism, mesmerism. Like, (laughs) there's a big sort of soft, squidgy area of uncertainty, which is like, okay, so she set him up to do this heist. But when it all goes wrong, he gets knocked over by a random woman in a car. Mm. How does the hypnosis work there? What's... I just don't really... I can't really see what the characters are trying to do with the hypnosis. And I can't see really... Did he lose his memory for... Because of hypnosis? Or well, this because is he it. got hit on the head? Or is, she he saying, is she saying that to not reveal the fact that she hypnotised him to forget the, the, the heist? Or did he actually lose his memory because getting hit on the head if it's because of the second thing that would need for her to change what she was doing post heist wouldn't it yeah the fact he got hit by a car and has got amnesia from being struck on the head by Frank that would mean that whatever she did post heist in terms of her hypnotic treatment of him presumably it was all going to be automatic where he forgot what he did he did it all and then just gave her the painting and then went on his merry way kind of thing. But we don't get that in the story about how everything's changed and what she has to do as a result of those those interventions in the narrative. So and I just don't buy it that, that, that hypnosis can do this much in such a programmed and direct way that it could do what she wants it to do like it, like it so happens in the story. I just don't buy it. I don't buy that a hypnotherapist can get time on an MRI machine <laughs> to erase the memory of a person. <laughs> that was just so... Why did he need to be in an MRI machine anyway to do that? Because they know. could have just shown him pictures of Elizabeth and give him a, a fake... Ele- or p- told him he was going to have an electric shock. They didn't need to put him in an MRI machine, did they? So she was making him forget... <laughs> she was making him forget her in order to stop falling in love with her? What was the reason for that? Do you remember? No. No. Because this reason. This was the question. How did she make him forget her the first time? Because it presumably wasn't with an MRI machine. So why didn't she use that method the second time around? I don't get it. Well, we didn't see, did we? We didn't see. You know, and oh gosh. We didn't see because there's no logical sort of current hypnotheric practice that would allow any of these these things to happen. A six from me. I was going to give it a four, because I think the science is pretty shonky. But, you know, the science of hypnotism is shonky. Any more categories, Paul, you want to suggest? Well, intrigue and thrills. Oh. This is probably where it works best. The two action scenes, front and back, were perfunctory and acceptable. Not great, though. And the intrigue does go on a bit long and is never really resolved clearly. For me, it's a 6.5 on that score. 
I didn't see the Brazilian coming. Is that a Brazilian or, or is that a Hollywood? I don't it know. is Brazilian, yeah. yeah. I liked the real references to real art heists. That was interesting. But we didn't get any sense of what the plan was for the painting or why stealing this was a good idea. So I'm going to have to give it five, I think. Overall, what would you score it? I mean, for me, it was, despite the frustrations, a quite an enjoyable movie to watch. I did enjoy the movie, let's put it that way. I um, liked the modernist architecture of Frank's flat. Yes. You know, as, as a crime pot boiler, I thought if they'd taken away some of the complications, it would have worked even better. So fundamentally, on the crime heist, you know, on the heist movie level, it worked. So overall, it's going to score a bit better than my parts. I'm going to give it a six. Yeah, I am also going to score it highly because it's a confusing and overly ambitious plot by a very competent director Mm -hmm. who knows how to tell a good story. So I'll give it a seven. There we go. Paul, the decision for next week is made for us already. It is, yeah. You're going to come to Manchester, I I hope, and Mm. we're going to see Oppenheimer on 70mm IMAX, very large format. In fact, I must book tickets for that. But more importantly, what will the speaker system be? Because I understand there's sometimes difficulty understanding the words being said in a Nolan movie. Paul, these are going to be speakers probably as big as the screen, and... It's going to be reproducing the sound of a nuclear explosion. So. Right, so it is Oppenheimer, the big release, I think, of this year, really, for, for adult audiences at least. And I'm very much looking forward to it. Yes, despite the temptation to go and look at more films by the guy who did Synchronic, for the moment, <laughs> next week's movie will be Oppenheimer. Thank you for listening. Goodbye from me. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Bye. Thank you.